At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 551st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we're talking with someone who is farming corn and other small-scale staple crops. We're talking with Chloe Lieberman about growing calorie crops. Chloe homesteads near Asheville, North Carolina. She also writes and teaches for Wild Abundance, a school of permaculture, natural building, and homesteading that's just down the road from Chloe's farm. She and her partner raise dairy goats, ducks, a milk cow, vegetables, fruits, mushrooms, and herbs. One of her great loves is growing staple crops, the kind of plants that can be the center stage during a meal. Along with growing food, Chloe is passionate about cooking and nutrition. Welcome to the show today, Chloe. Are you ready to rock? All right, let's do it. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in suburban Northern California, so I did not grow up growing food in my immediate family. But I went to a small public school in a more rural part of the county where I grew up. And so I had friends whose families were growing food. Uh, One of my best friend's moms raised dairy goats and made cheese. And I was just always really drawn to gardens and animals and and farming and land-based living. And that sort of just was a continued thread as long as I can remember in my life growing up. And as a young adult, I was kind of disillusioned with high school. And I, I finished high school early so that I could take a year off before going to college. And during that year, I saved up, I worked and saved up money. And then I traveled and woofed. So I volunteered on farms all over New Zealand. Wow. And I just have, yeah, when I was like 17. And then I came back and I studied agroecology and sustainable food systems at the University of California, Santa Cruz. So the growing food has been a thread that has just been through in my life the whole time. And in particular, the intersection between, you know, like you said in my bio, I'm really passionate about nutrition and cooking and, and eating and sharing food. And so just that those intersections between food and food plants and animals as these elements of the natural non-human world that we interact with every day. And then as central elements in our interactions as humans and as communities. And so when I was in, actually from the time I was a young child, I got really interested in like animal rights and activism around how our, particularly animals when I was a younger person, how we treat the animal as a culture, how we treat the animals who provide our food during their lives. And I was just saddened as a seven and a half year old to learn about factory farming and to learn how we treated those animals. And it just didn't make any sense to me. And I became an activist and a vegetarian at the age of eight and 
<laughs> that was also a kind of a theme, has been a theme through my life. But when I was in college, I did a lot of work with a, a nonprofit that was based at the university there called the Community Agroecology Network. And what they focus on is the relationship between transitioning to organic and more sustainable practices and fair trade arrangements and direct trade arrangements. So how the economics of food can impact, have a huge impact on the farming practices and the ecological impact. And so kind of that bigger food system approach and food justice approach was really grabbed me at that time in my life. And so as a result of that, I ended up doing an internship for three months down in Costa Rica with a coffee farming co-op and a sort of a subgroup of the co-op that was transitioning to organic practices and working with the community agroecology network to sell their coffee in a direct trade model. So more of the actual income from the coffee, because coffee is a pretty high value crop, right? but um, most of that gets lost in the process of bringing it from the tropical world where it grows well to the temperate world the U.S. and Europe in particular, where most of it, a lot of it is consumed. So the model that we were exploring was a more direct trade model where more of that money was going into the, the hands of the farmers and helping them to transition away from chemical fungicides and other toxic substances that were hurting them physically and obviously hurting the land where they're growing. So through that experience, I sort of fell in love. I learned how to speak Spanish and I fell in love with Central American culture and got to see a lot of subsistence farms and meet a lot of incredible farmers and just sort of became smitten with corn in particular and beans and squash and just folks growing the real, the kind of the, the staple crops, the, the basis of their diets, not just the, you know, the garnish or the salad, which mm-hmm. a lot of gardeners up here, that's kind of what they focus on and, right. and which is awesome. But um, yeah, just the idea that we could have this direct relationship with our main calorie crops was really inspiring to me. And then, you know, just looking at more land-based cultures around the world, including older European and North American cultures, you know, before sort of the modern age of the grocery store culture, you know, everybody had direct relationships with not just their salad and garnishes, but the, the staple crops, the main calorie foods that nourish them. And so, yeah, that's just been a passion of mine, and I've explored it in lots of ways. And then seven years ago, I ended up here in North Carolina and had the good fortune and blessing of being able to purchase my own farm with my partner. And part of what brought us together was this curiosity of what it would actually take to grow all our own food. And in particular, our, one of our early goals was to grow enough corn to eat tacos as many days of the week all year as we nice. wanted to. So. <laughs> that was tacos were a motivating factor for me. Well, that's what that's what food does to us. So I want to actually go back and explore something because for me, I'm 59 years old and I knew very early in life that this is what I was supposed to be doing. And in the 70s, I was doing things like starting a business where I'd build fish ponds for people to grow food in their backyards and writing papers on how we were overfishing the oceans. How I came to be there, I have no idea to this day. And so I'm always curious to know how people, how did you know that this is what you were supposed to be doing? Because it sounds like from a very early age, that's where you were. Yeah, I I mean, definitely one of the entry points was just a love of food and a love of cooking. And I was really fortunate to grow up in a part of the world and grow up with the kind of socioeconomic privilege that 
allowed me to have access to really good quality food. You know, my parents were kind of early adopters of, you know, organic from the purchasing standpoint. And I lived in an area where there were small organic farms, there were farmers markets. And so my mom, who did most of the cooking and food buying, would buy good quality ingredients and would buy, I liked, you know, snacks as a kid were like whole red bell peppers, you know, and, and just delicious vegetables. And I had access to vegetables of high enough quality to really experience what they could taste like. Mm -hmm. And also my mom let me just play around in the kitchen. You know, she let me help her and she let me make concoctions. And so that was just, I feel like that just, I came into the world with that love of both flavor and also exploring cooking and kind of creating things out of ingredients. But also you know, I, again, was really privileged to grow up with a lot of beautiful land around me. And I felt deeply connected with the land around me, just, out, you know, outside my door. I lived in the suburbs, but there was open space that we could hike to from my home. And, and like I said, I went to this rural, more rural elementary school, and I got to experience more open space and big gardens and animal agriculture at my friends' homes. And it just was fun. I mean, it was like started out just from a joyful place. Like, oh, this is like fun and beautiful and delicious. And this is just where I want to be. It feels good. And I read probably 10 times the whole Little House on the Prairie series, which, you know, is obviously through the perspective of white colonial settlers. So that's just one perspective right. on sustainable living or land-based living. But it just really just the, the descriptions in those books of the processes of harvesting things and making things and, you know, eating through the winter what they grew and gathered. And it just really inspired me. And then, like I said, when I was about seven and a half, I actually remember this very clearly, I saw a documentary. We only had, we had an antenna, no cable, and I didn't watch a lot of television as a kid, but we got public a public broadcasting channel. And I saw on that a documentary about concentrated animal feeding operations mm. or CAFOs. Yep. And I was just appalled. I was like, I loved animals. You know, I loved living things, a very sort of nurturing nature. And I was just like, that is crazy and not okay. And so that launched me into this whole, you know, I became a vegetarian. I became sort of an activist against animal testing. I literally like painted posters and taped them up on the window at the post office and like <laughs> crazy things for a little kid to do. And fortunately, my parents were like, okay. But yeah, so th so it's, it was kind of this two-pronged thing that really galvanized my sort of life path around food and growing food of just joy and love and deep connection with the plants and animals that feed us and the natural world that gives us life. And then also this feeling of protection or of needing to be a voice for change in the way that we as a bigger society relate to those things with such incredible disrespect. And then later on, I learned also the negative impacts on ourselves that those kinds of choices make, raising animals and plants with lots of chemicals and in inhumane and disrespectful ways. You know, it's not just morally wrong, but actually has a really negative impact on the climate, on the soil, on the water, on our health and all of that. So, but those were kind of the origins of, of this path for me. Wow. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And so let's jump over into staple crops and your interest in staple crops. First of all, why should somebody grow a staple crop and what are they? So what are they? I'll start with that. So staple crops are the kinds of plants that produce 
food that is calorie dense. So, you know, depending on your diet and depending on the food preservation techniques that you employ, you know, I consider in my homestead system here, I consider greens to be a, a staple crop because I do, I produce a lot of greens. I dry and I blanch and freeze greens and they are really a mainstay. They provide a significant portion of the calories and nutrition in my diet. So most people wouldn't consider greens a staple crop, but just that's kind of built into our system here. But typically staple crops are are dense in calories and oftentimes can be stored for a long time. So things like corn and other grains, dry beans and dry peas, sweet potatoes, potatoes, winter squash. Those are those are what I think of in terms of staple crop staple crops. And obviously grain is like a huge category and different bioregions and different cultures around the world have different grains that form kind of the basis of the diet. And why we should be thinking about them, well, I mean <laughs> Because we need to eat. It's like <laughs> right? a, a big one. Especially and right now. People, I mean, yeah, especially right now. I mean, those are the kinds of things that people are going and buying huge amounts of to have, you know, in buckets or bags or jars at their home if they happen to be stuck at home and not have access to a grocery store for weeks or months at a time. Those are the things that you can store and, and reach to when you need to feed yourself over a period of time where you may not have access to fresh food. But also, I mean, there, there's that, which I think is incredibly important, just that we can actually fill out a meal. Like I said, not just grow the garnish and the salad and the sauce, but grow the actual, you know, the tortilla that you put the taco in or the rice that you put the veggies on top of or whatever it happens to be. But also because when we go to the store, you know, with rice, we, there's usually several varieties. At like a good health food store, you'll see basmati rice and you'll see jasmine rice, you'll see short grain and long grain. But with most, with corn, usually you might see like white corn flour, yellow corn flour, and like polenta and maybe some matzah harina. And the reality of corn is that it's incredibly diverse. There's so many different kinds of kinds and colors and textures and flavors of corn. And so when we actually, and same with potatoes and same with sweet potatoes and same with squash, same with all of these things, you know, because the diversity that's been developed over time in different bioregions by different people and different communities to meet their needs, both in terms of cultivation and in terms of Again, that joyful relationship with food. So when we grow our own stable crops, we have access to just a much wider range. And like I said, in terms of flavor, texture, these kinds of things, and also nutrition. So I've read studies looking at the protein content of quote-unquote heirloom corns, which we can get into what that means. It's kind of a broad term. And they can be as much as twice as high as the protein content of your kind of standard commercial dent corn. So when wow. we start engaging with these, yeah, I know, it's incredible. And that's not even getting into the flavor. I mean, the flavor right. is like a whole different world. Yeah. So those are the reasons why, those are some of the reasons. And then the final one I would mention is just, I feel like a huge benefit of growing our own food is having a relationship with those plants. And so if we go to the store and buy, you know, pack of a hundred tortillas for like $7 or whatever crazy price we pay for prepackaged tortillas. Mm -hmm. We only have a relationship with the tortilla, but if we, you know, plant a seed, we see the tiny little sprout grow, we see it grow bigger and bigger. 
We watch the tassels swaying in the breeze as the wind carries the pollen and pollinates the, the young ears and the ears swell up and become fat and then they go through the milky stage and they dry down and we harvest them. Like it, when we eat that tortilla, it's like this whole, whole experience. It's a holistic experience, really. And whether or not we're going to grow all of our own staple crops, I believe that having that kind of relationship gives us a lot more respect for the people who are growing our staple crops and for the crops themselves. Wow. So you can actually grow corn and wheat all the way from seed to grinding mill to tortilla. Tell me about that process. Oh, yes. It's it's funny that you asked that because so many people ask us that, that we've been joking about we need to create like a PDF that we can just give to people because yeah. like, people text us and we're typing in the process in, in the little phone screen. We're like, oh my gosh, I've typed this like a hundred times. So yeah, making tortillas is totally super accessible. It, it is a process, but you can totally do it at home. And it's a, a like another layer of that beautiful relationship with these staple crops and with these food plants. So Corn that is turned into tortillas goes through a process called nistamalization, and that is a funny sort of translation or, or transformation of a word in the Nahuatl language, which is the traditional language of the Aztec people, and it basically means ash corn. Niche is ash, and tamal is like one of the many, many, many words in that language for corn. And so it's a process of transforming the corn through soaking and or cooking in a, an alkaline solution. And traditionally, the alkaline solution was a lye made from wood ash. And that's what we do. But in like when you buy tortillas or tortilla chips at the store, what they use is hydrated lime, so pickling lime which you can buy at a Mexican or Latinx market. And you can use that too. But we use wood ash because we heat our home with a wood stove. So that's something that's abundant for us. And basically what you do is you, the, the process that we do is you take, we take wood ash, a measured amount of wood ash and put it in water and warm that water up. It doesn't have to boil, but basically steep it like a tea for like 15 or 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then pour that water through a sieve because our ashes, it's a pain in the butt to sift out the ashes. There's little bits of charcoal and bigger chunks. And so we sift out the water after we've steeped the ashes in the water. It's a lot easier to do. So through a you know, a fine mesh colander or tea strainer or something like that. Pour that now lye solution, the ash tea basically, into another pot. And then to that, add a measured amount of corn, of dry corn. And the best kinds of corn to make tortillas are flint corns and bent corns. So flour corn doesn't work as well. And I can go into those, those three kind of categories of corn in a second. But then what you do is boil the corn in the lye solution, depending on the quantity of corn for, for like two or three hours. It takes a long time. Corn is, is, you know, it's a large grain until it's for tortillas. It's ideal that it's cooked all the way through, but still firm. So I usually pull out a corner kernel and just bite it in half with my teeth. Mm -hmm. And then I look at it. And if the very, very middle is still white and starchy, then that's the perfect phase for making tortillas. And then that can either be dried and then ground dried into like a masa arena, so a dry nishtamalized flour. But I don't do that because that's an added step. What I do is I grind. So, oh, excuse me, I'm skipping a step. So what the lye solution does is it dissolves the pericarp, so the hole basically All right. around the kernel, which is not very digestible. So that gets dissolved and also 
the lye solution transforms the B vitamins that are contained in the corn into a more absorbable form. And so in particular, niacin that is in the corn is made available to the body through this process. And so all traditional cultures that rely on corn as a staple crop do some form of this process because if corn is a staple of your diet without doing this process, then it's very easy to get pellagra, which is a deficiency syndrome, a niacin deficiency syndrome. So this is like for flavor and ease of digestion and eating and also for nutrition. It's like this beautiful synergy between the people and the corn. And then, so what we do is we grind the corn wet. And you can, originally we got a Corona mill. So this is a mill made in Mexico, a little hand mill that you can clamp onto your counter that is made specifically for this purpose. At this point, we do a lot of tortillas and we also process a lot of our own animals. And so we bought, a for, for processing some hogs, we bought a pretty high powered meat grinder. And one day we're like, what if, let's try <laughs> doing the corn in the meat grinder. And it actually works amazingly well. And oh, I'll bet. So that's what we do these days because we'll, I'll do a big batch like once a week and then make tortillas throughout the week. They're the best fresh, but they, they will hang out in the fridge and then just steam to kind of moisten them a little more. So that you can have tacos whenever you want. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Tacos and now, I mean, I, I, like I said, I have this deep affinity and have had spent a lot of time traveling in Mesoamerica and South America. And there's lots and lots of corn, nationalized corn-based dishes, tacos being just one of them. So that's, yeah. that's a fun thing to explore. So what's the difference between the different kinds of corn, field corn, dry corn, sweet corn? Yes. So sweet corn is what most people in North America here are most familiar with. So sweet corn is a kind of corn, a sort of a class of corn, there's lots of varieties, that have been bred for fresh eating at the milky stage. So that means those varieties have been selected for really sweet, juicy kernels before the kernels are all the way ripe. So before they, they ripen and dry down. So we eat them in the fresh stage and we boil them or steam them. You can just eat them raw and they're very sweet. And all kinds of corn go through that milky stage, but varieties that have been bred for consumption as sweet corn stay in that milky stage longer and with the modern varieties for a very long time. And then again, with the modern varieties of sweet corn, they, they will stay in that milky stage and won't get starchy after picking. So there's kind of a, an old time saying here in Southern Appalachia where I live, which is like, you got to pick the corn and put it in the pot. Like, don't even bring it in the house, you know, just pick it and put it in the pot and mm -hmm. cook it right away because it'll taste the best then. And so, yeah, modern varieties of sweet corn have been bred so that they last on the shelf a little longer, but it's this really the short window. And then field corn or dry corn, I consider those to be interchangeable. And those are corns that we grow all the way through to maturity and harvest the dry seeds for flour or polenta or tortillas, nishtamalization, like I just mentioned. And then of the field corns, there are kind of three classes. There's three types. There's, again, there's lots of varieties within each of these types, but what I mentioned earlier, the flour corn, flint corn, and dent corn. So flour corns have a starchy endosperm. So if you, if you were to cut a dry kernel in half, I usually do this with a pair of pruning shears. It's kind of hard to do with a knife. They hop all over the place. Mm -hmm. But you cut it open and you see what looks like flour inside. It's very starchy oh, wow. and, and sort of not very dense. And with a flint corn, if you cut that kernel in half, it's more glassy 
and opaque and more dense. And there's still a little bit of starchiness, like what looks like flour, but it's a lot more dense, and those have higher amounts of protein typically. And they make much better tortillas because they, those proteins kind of glue together the tortillas, whereas the flour corn, it's sort of much more crumbly. And then dent corns, and both flint corns and flour corns are ancient kinds of corns. So ancient people who cultivated corn had both flint and flour types. Now, dent corn is a modern adaptation that's basically in, in like to sort of simplify, oversimplify a combination of the two. So they have kind of an equal, more or less an equal amount of that flinty and that flowery endosperm. And the kernels have a little dent in the top because the flinty and flowery endosperms dry down at different rates. So they pucker a little bit. Each kernel puckers. Oh, right. And yeah, so, so dent corns have been around for quite a while, but they are considered more of a modern adaptation. And all of the corn that's grown in the corn belt for animal feed, for ethanol, for food additives, for plastics, I mean, for corn syrup, that's all dent corn. None of that is flower corn or flint corn because dent corns on the whole yield a lot more than flower corns and flint corns. I grow all three because they all have benefits in my mind. They all have different uses. They all have different flavor profiles and they have different times to maturity. So depending on your climate, it might make more sense to choose one or the other. Or, I mean, I'm obviously a proponent of trying all three <laughs> and right. seeing what works for you. But that's kind of an overview of the different the different kinds. So how big is your farm? We have a place that's 23 acres, which sounds big, but we're in the mountains here. And more than half of that is a wooded hillside, which my partner is fervently transforming into a silvopasture and nut orchard. But it's a slow process. <laughs> right. So in terms of, <laughs> in terms of field crop space, we have, I would say there's some rotation that happens, but I would say we have about a, a half an acre. The reason I asked yeah. you that is because you're dr- growing three different kinds of corn. Corn is wind pollinated. Yep. And are you saving the seeds? And if you are, how are you preventing them from cross pollinating or are you, does it matter to you? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I we do and we don't depending on the year and you know some years we're like I just, we just want to trial like uh, the first few years we would just trial like five or six varieties and we're like we're just trialing them. We're not going to save seed. We're just going to kind of see what works in this area. And you know, that's depending on seed companies and we buy mostly from small scale seed companies, particularly a few local ones. Mm-hmm. But that's definitely putting our self-reliance in the hands of others, which has its pluses and minuses. But we've sort of narrowed it down to a few varieties. And here in the mountains, so so we have about a half an acre in cultivation, and that's three separate fields on our farm. And there are topographical shifts and trees in between those fields. So there's some barriers. Got it. And that reduces the cross-pollination for sure. So if you're living in a in an open flat, you know, you have however much space and it's all just one big open field, then cross-pollination is going to be more of an issue than if you have barriers, topographical or, you know, tree kind of barriers or buildings in between your fields. But another thing that we do, because yes, we are saving seed at this point, is so corn needs to be planted in blocks. It doesn't do well in long skinny rows because of that wind pollination. Mm -hmm. So if you have like 
let's say, yeah, like as close to a square as possible is ideal for, for corn. So rather than doing like one long hundred foot row, you would do a 10 by 10 block, just for example. And we found that within the middle of those blocks, most of that corn is pollinated, like the pollen from the surrounding corn gets there first to the middle of the block. So oh, the corn itself right. acts as a little bit of a buffer. And we're not at this point selling corn seed, you know, to a seed company. We do share and trade it with our friends, but we tend to grow varieties of different colors. And so over the course of the next few generations, we can often see if there's some cross crossing happening. And also we're not that concerned with that. Like I, I don't save seed when we're trialing eight different varieties and they're all in tiny blocks all next to each other because that's so much crossing. But a little bit of crossing is not a concern for me. And we can kind of rogue out and keep maintaining the qualities that we're going for over time. Uh-huh. So yeah, that's our strategy. Some people will plant at different times, hoping that, that castling right. and pollination will happen mm-hmm. at different times. And what we found with the varieties that do well here in the mountains is that they all just end up dazzling at the same time. <laughs> it's kind of like the weather is, you know, they're they're going with the temperature and the day length and the weather even more. I mean, we haven't tried varieties that are like dramatically different, but we don't have a super long growing season here for hot weather plants like corn. So that approach hasn't worked for us, but I know that it, it certainly will in other kinds of climates. You know, we are... 30 minutes into this and we could talk for the next three hours. I'm loving this conversation, <laughs> but we're going to have to transition. Maybe we can have you come back and have another conversation about a different staple crop. How about that? Yeah, great. I would love to. All right, cool. So tell me about your online gardening school, uh, wildabundance.net. Oh, yes. This is a very exciting project that we have been wanting to do for a long time. And then with the whole global crisis that happened in the spring, we were kind of pushed into developing more online programs, both so that our business could stay afloat and we could continue teaching people. And also because we just were flooded with questions about people wanting to start gardens and not mm-hmm. really knowing how. And actually, it was funny when I mentioned that we were going to do this to a friend who's also a pretty experienced gardener. She was like, oh, that's a great idea. Everybody wants to start a garden right now. Nobody knows what the heck they're doing. Amen. <laughs> So, <laughs> so yeah, we put together this online program that has 12 foundational classes. So on things like starting a garden from grass, soils 101, sourcing good quality seeds and transplants, water and irrigation, pests and pest management, et cetera. And then we offer a sort of mini class each month on the garden and what's happening in the garden that month, and then a Q&A session with that each month. And so the idea is to give people a foundation so that they can then go and experiment and explore in their own garden and feel like they have that support and guidance and they can troubleshoot with us. But basically, they're getting that beautiful relationship, building that beautiful relationship and getting that experience of doing it on their own, but not having to make the same mistakes that we've made and really learning from our mistakes and getting to see things in action. So, so yeah, it's a pretty exciting thing. And I'm just really grateful to have a medium to reach out to more people and share mm-hmm. my excitement and my experience and, and encourage people. Cause it can be, you know, your first garden can be a bummer. Sometimes you're right. expecting like these big, beautiful, yep. juicy tomatoes. And then 
blight comes in or the bugs come in or you forget to water and you get like a handful and you're like, really? <laughs> so yeah, I'm excited to be just sharing my experience and encouragement so that people can feel like they've really accomplished something and experience that joy and that success. And so yeah. hopefully they can keep going with it. Oh, beautiful. And that's wildabundance.net. Yeah, you can find that just under our online classes or gardening classes. There are different ways to navigate to it. Farm out. Congratulations and yeah. keep that up. This is the single most important thing that we can be doing right now is figuring out how to grow our own food. So Absolutely. I agree. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you learned from it. Well, since we've been talking about corn so much, the first one, there there have been many, but the first one that pops into my mind is a year where we pretty much, I think we ended up with like a gallon of dry corn or some, like oh my gosh. almost nothing, uh-huh. almost nothing in yield because of raccoons. Oh. And so we live in a very, in a mountainous region with a lot of creeks and springs and streams. And our farm is surrounded on two sides by moving water and lots of forest around us. So it's basically like raccoon highways. And it's funny, the first couple years that we grew corn here, it wasn't an issue. And then one year they just came in and what raccoons will do to corn is they'll come when it's in that milky stage. So that sweet corn stage and they'll pull the plant down. So break the stalk and take like two or three bites and then leave the ear on its broken stalk on the ground to mold. And so it's not just that they are decimating the crop. It's like they don't even, if they just ate, you know, one, one. third of every, of the whole, the whole yield, and I still got two thirds that they left, but no, they take two or three bites of every single one. And so that was extremely disappointing and frustrating. But also it was a reminder that like, this is their home more than it's our home. Right. They have been here a lot longer than we have. And we basically were just planting corn year after year and kind of like, hey, we're just going to do this right in your backyard. And then to be surprised that they come and eat it, it's actually more ridiculous than (laughs) anything. You know, it's like, yeah, they're here too, of course. And so we, you know, it was just a beautiful reminder of the interconnectedness of our home here and of our lives. And we made some offerings to them. We ended up, you know, being more proactive the next year about trapping them hasn't been as much of a problem. But yeah, just watching the arc of my response of being like really pissed off and like (laughs) partner would go out there with the 22 at dusk and just like sit there, you know, but then, you know, we shot a couple of raccoons and just kind of felt bad because it's Mm -hmm. like, they're just living their lives, you know? And so, yeah, finding a way to adapt and to coexist with the other creatures that are here and really whose homes we invaded was a great lesson from that. And and just being proactive and also the continued lesson of not putting all our eggs in one basket. So we ate a lot of sweet potatoes that year because we didn't have corn to eat, but we had sweet potatoes. So good thanks for that. There you go. And what do you consider your biggest success? More and more friends and neighbors are reaching out to me for guidance. And I consider that a great success. Like I have done a lot of failing and experimenting and exploring and learn some things from that. And I guess I've done a good job of sharing that experience and being open and communicative about that because people are looking to me 
for guidance and for feedback and for ideas and for seeds and for suggestions. And that, I would say, is a great success because, you know, there's kind of this weird tension in the like back to the lander permaculture movement of this idea of self-sufficiency and then this idea of community. And you know, I'm I'm into self-sufficiency. Like I like knowing how to grow corn and make tortillas. I like how knowing how to do things for myself. But I also really love how we need each other, you know, and how we depend on each other and how we can nurture those relationships too and give what we have to give freely and receive what others have to give and create this kind of net gain strength in our in our collective experience. And so that I would consider a good success, a great success, like participating in that in such a way that people feel welcome to reach out to me for for guidance and commiseration sometimes. I don't always know what to do. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's a hard thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's happened to me, too. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> and that is so cool. I, I, I experienced the same thing you know, with the podcast and over 550 episodes, people reaching out to me and giving me kudos. It's like, wow, I can make a difference out there. And it sounds like that's what it is yeah, for me too. Absolutely. And just letting people know, like, you know, I'm like some random kid from the suburbs. Like I, it's not like, <laughs> right? you know, like you and I me too. have been, yeah, just kind of stumbling along. And there's just a lot of wisdom out there in other people and also in the land and the plants and the animals themselves. So. Yeah, just reminding people of that reality that when people remember is kind of obvious. You know, they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, (laughs) that's how it is. Yeah. Wow. And what drives you? Ultimately, I would say what drives me is the deep belief that we as humans have the capacity to live with the rest of our brothers and sisters here in the natural world in a beautiful way. And I don't see that happening on a big scale right now. You know, it can be pretty depressing to see how humans are relating with. Yeah. And even just each other, you know, just Mm -hmm. like people are not nice to each other a lot of the time and not in a place of recognition of how much generosity we receive from the earth and from other people who work hard to make our lives possible and from plants and from animals. And so what drives me is like, like that same thing that drove me to make those posters as a little girl against <laughs> animal testing. And right? put them at the post office, just a sense of like, we no, but if everybody just knew what was going on, they wouldn't keep making these decisions. Mm-hmm. It must be that people just don't see what's happening, you know? And so I want to be a voice because I have that capacity, you know, I speak English, which is, is in and of itself a privilege and a powerful position to be in. I'm a white person. I'm a privileged landowning person. Like I have this huge amount of power and yeah, I, I want to wield that in a way that helps people see what I consider just the reality of our, what's possible. Wow. Amen to that. Well said. Thanks. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? The Resilient Gardener, Food Production and Self-Reliance in Uncertain Times. And it's by an amazing woman named Carol Depp. And it's basically an exploration of her staple crops. And the five staple crops she covers are potatoes, corn, beans, squash, and eggs. And it's a lot more than that, too, but it really walks you through the sort of garden or homestead scale production or relationship building with these crops. 
and her experience as a farmer growing these for a long time and her experience as a woman in her 60s growing them. So she's mm-hmm. like, she talks about things like bringing a cot out to the field when you're harvesting so that you can lay down in the middle of the day and take a rest. I'm like, yes, I love that. This oh, is nice. like reality. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But yeah, she's also a Taoist and just like an incredible kind of garden philosopher and very, very practical information and also kind of bigger picture in ideas about how to approach gardening and food growing when we don't have all the right tools and all the right inputs and all the right, you know, conditions when we have to adapt to change and uncertainty. So yeah, it's a great read. I can't recommend it highly enough. Nice. And we were actually lucky enough to get her on episode 54 back in March of 2016. So if you want to hear... Awesome. I'm going to go listen to that. Yeah. If you want to hear (laughs) from Carol, check that podcast out. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I guess I would say find your delight, you know, and not in the sense of like just do things that are easy and fun because I think we that's not really enough right now in the world or maybe never was enough like yeah not just things that are easy and fun but find where your heart really sings and it can be overwhelming to kind of look at the current situation and our lack of self-sufficiency and self-reliance and resilience and kind of want to do everything all at once and you know, we don't all need to be experts at everything. And I think a better guiding principle or a more potentially more rewarding and successful guiding principle would be to follow our individual heart's delight through whatever we need to follow it through, you know, through hardship and struggle and activism and speaking out and changing systems and changing people's minds and working hard and all of that. But but when that's the motivation, then we have access to this well of energy and we can do so much more. And then it's not just about the outcome. It's also about the process, which, you know, with gardening and growing food, that has to be part of what you're going for because, you know, the raccoons can come or the rains don't come or <laughs> right. they come too much. So many things can happen. And so finding delight in the whole process. And just allowing yourself to follow through on the things that you really feel captivated by and not feeling like you have to do everything and not feeling like you have to do everything right now. Wow. Well, I have to tell you, I'm really impressed with who you are. I think you're brilliant in what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. We've really, I really enjoyed having you on the show today, Chloe. I've enjoyed talking with you too. Thanks for having me. You bet. How can our listeners find you? The best way is probably through Wild Abundance. So I'm one of the staff members there, and my email is on the website. But just a quick and easy reference, again, wildabundance.net. And you can find out about yeah, different projects that we're working on, the online gardening school, our in-person classes, if you're able to travel here to Southern Appalachia. It's a very beautiful place, so I encourage that. But, um, yeah, that's the easiest place to get a hold of me, wildabundance.net. Beautiful. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash wild abundance. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. 
In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.